You're listening to Ed Curation, the podcast where teachers talk curriculum. We make it easier for educators to find the resources they need to create fresh, lively, and authentic learning. Welcome to another edition of Ed Curation, where teachers talk curriculum. And today I'm excited to have Brendan Jobes here, the Director of Diversity and Inclusion from the Haverford School in Haverford, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Brendan. Thank you. So tell our listeners today about your work as an educator. How long have you been teaching? What do you teach? Where? And, and what kind of students do you serve? Uh, I've been teaching for a long time now. It seems, I feel like I started yesterday, but it wasn't yesterday. It was actually, I think, 2006, 2007. So I've been teaching for close to 14 years. The first 10 of those, I was in public schools, Philadelphia public schools, teaching history, first in an all-girls high school, the Philadelphia High School for Girls. I taught AP U.S. history and world history and African-American history. And then I changed to a co-ed school that was kind of arts-based, almost like a choir school camp, which are an academic music program. And it was after being at camp for three years, the private school world opened up to me. I entered the private school side of things. So I've been at the Haverford School for Boys for the past four years. First, as assistant director of community life, I was also teaching full-time while doing that role. And since then, I'm teaching a little less, although I'm still teaching history in the classroom. And I serve across all three divisions of the school as the first director of diversity and inclusion. That sounds like an exciting role and an exciting career path. So to do this kind of work for 14 years, it takes some serious love and passion, I think. Tell us what you like about teaching. I like getting to know people. I feel like that's the heart and soul of my classroom space. And I also love play. And I feel like for my work, my first three years of teaching, I just tried to get through a lot of content survival mode the way I think a lot of teachers do and are trained to you know perform but it was after that I was I I started to think well I can't just keep chasing curriculum there's got to be something more fun about this there's got to be something more human about this and I started to find much more play and being able to question with whoever was in front of me in the classroom space So I started to play with questions and, you know, every year the kids come into the classroom spaces I run with new ones. And, you know, some of the same questions, some of the age-old questions, like, what does it mean to be happy? (laughs) I never get tired kind of grappling with that, especially with our youngest one. Interesting. So you are here to talk to us today about these kinds of questions, specifically the question formulation technique. Tell us more about this. Mm -hmm. So. When I came out to independent schools, there's I, I started going to this conference that happens every single year in a different place. It's called the People of Color Conference. It's in a different place every year. One year, it was in California in Anaheim, and there was a presenter who gave a talk in front of the thousands of people who were present. And then I was lucky enough to be in a master class with her. Her name's Lou Santana. Dan Rothstein and her back in 2011 wrote this book called Make Just One Change. The subtitle is Teach Students Ask Their Own Questions. It sounds like it's not rocket science because, you know, it isn't rocket science, but it really, the method energized me. It, it was something that when I went through it with Lou Santana in the, in the master class, I knew I had to try right away just to play. I've always cared about questions in the classroom as kind of the drivers of curriculum and drivers of our, our exchanges. 
but this offered us a real method, you know, to formulating the right questions. So what is the method? You say the method energized you. What is the method of the question formulation technique? So there are a number of very specific rules for it, right? And the biggest rule, and I think I'll, I guess I could start by saying the heart and soul of the question formulation technique is non-judgment, right? I think so often when folks are asking questions in classroom spaces or just in general, we're worrying about whether or not our questions are dumb. You know, am I asking a dumb question? And this is a question that everybody has the answer to. So one of the first rules of this is not judge. Another part of it is staying engaged, being curious. And another big portion of it is accepting a lack of closure. Because at the end of the question formulation technique, all you're left with are questions. You're not left with answers. What I like about the method, and I'll talk a little bit more about the steps of it, is that it offers the idea that when you're looking at moments in history or moments or problems within society, so often we try to get together the smartest people in the room or the most expert people in the in a space to come up with what the solution to the problem is so we can fix that problem. What I really like about this is that it kind of takes the burden off of us as human beings to solve all problems. The premise here is is that you know sometimes the best way to interrogate a problem is to do just that, interrogate it, come up with the best questions. And the questions are what lead to a whole world of a possibility of solutions that otherwise might not have been thought about. They weren't questioned, right? So besides those kind of framings for entering the question formulation technique, the question formulation technique begins with a question focus. So an example of a question focus, I did one with my modern world history class. I teach modern world history at the Haverford School and Modern Black Lives, a senior elective class. When the kids came in, they had all this confusion around our relationship with Iran, right? And there was all this fear around, are we going into World War III or what's going to happen next, right? So the question focus that we had was, Iran's power over Iraq has the potential to instigate World War III. So imagine this as a focus, not as just a statement to believe, but as a premise to interrogate. So the rules now become, we have this question focus, Iran's power over Iraq has the potential to instigate World War III. The process now becomes to, one, ask as many questions as you can about that premise. Two, don't stop to discuss, judge, or answer any questions that come up as you're questioning the premise. And then write down all the questions that are coming up from whoever's in the room exactly as the question is stated. So that includes, you know, grammatical errors or as questions are stated, no judgment, no correction. And then the last part, and I think this has really helped my groups, is because so often it's hard for us to think about questions. We want to like just say something as a statement. So part of it is, you know, if you are saying something as a statement, change that into a question. (laughs) So that's the process, right? First, have this premise and then question, question, question it. How long do the questions go on for? I time it, right? When Luz Santana in Anaheim a couple years ago did it, I think she gave us like two or three minutes. That's part of the beauty of it too. There's like a freneticness to it. There's a frantic energy. There's a playfulness to it. You don't have an hour to ask all the questions you have in the world. You have maybe two or three minutes, right? 
to ask as many questions in a team around this premise. And it doesn't stop with just, you know, asking questions. This is the, these are other parts of the process. Once we have a list of questions developed, now it's for us to start to improve the question. So for question improvement in, in teams, typically I have my groups of my classes now are about 17 to 20 kids. So I break the teams down into manageable bite, bite sizes, maybe four to five students with one scribe. But I've done this in groups as large as 100. <laughs> there was a, a workshop over at the Shipley School, which isn't far from us, where we digested research this way. So once you have all these questions in small groups, you have the kids go through and list all open-ended questions or questions that require an explanation and can't be answered with yes or no as O, you know, just O, open-ended. And you have them list all closed-ended questions that they come up with or questions that can be answered with yes or no as closed, right? Once they mark all of those, we actually talk about questions. You know, this is probably my favorite part of the process. What are the advantages and disadvantages of asking closed-ended questions? And then on the flip side, what are the advantages and disadvantages of answering open-ended questions? Mm -hmm. And then after that point, they have to prioritize their questions. So out of all the questions, we know what types they are. We know what's been asked. They have to choose three out of all the questions they've come up with that are the most critical, the most important. So this is putting in students' hands, not just the power of interrogating something, but also the power of thinking about what's most critical to their small team. After they prioritize the questions, and this is the last step, they share out their questions with the entire group. So this is where conversation really starts to bubble and boil and where interest really starts to generate with students around, you know, well, what can we research now? We have these amazing questions. What do we do with them? We really start to try to answer what we can, how we can. And so then do you send them off to find possible answers for their three questions or what happens next? It depends, right? So I've used this method as a precursor to Socratic seminars. So in that case, if we're doing a Socratic seminar, then that list of questions becomes, and when I do Socratic seminars, I step out of the classroom completely, the kids run it. Who's ever leading the dialogue as the Socratic seminar leader has this as kind of their guide, right? For where to lead conversation, all the, all the, all the paths they can take it. In the case of this premise, Iran's power over Iraq has the potential to instigate World War III. Kids came in so nervous and so like filled with, they weren't filled with questions actually, they just seemed confused, but they weren't sure about what. So I used this questioning technique, one, for me as a teacher to get a sense of where the questions were with this in modern world history, but also as a precursor to us actually engaging with the media. So instead of us just watching media to try to get us get get our heads around what's going on in the world they had all these questions that they were going into the media with so it almost operates as a pre-reading or a pre-class engagement yeah so i'm imagining that this strategy this question formulation technique can be used in a wide variety of ways to really engage mm -hmm. in thinking about the learning that's to come or what they're curious about related to some recent or upcoming learning and really, you know, creates culture in your classroom, makes students mm -hmm. feel safe that all questions are valid and actually not just valid, but worthy of as a stepping point to further their knowledge as a group and individually. That's just 
really powerful. Yeah, and it keeps them at the center. You know, I remember growing up, I'm from South Jersey, from Atlantic City. Although I'm a first generation Trinidadian immigrant, my mom and dad came to this country for education. And I remember when I was growing up, I never understood why he said this, but he said it to me over and over and over again. My dad would always say, if you ever have a question in school, don't you dare hold it back. You make sure that you ask it. Because if you have that question, then guaranteed somebody else has that question too. And I remember this was the 80s and 90s. So I remember my classrooms being much more teacher-centered. So in my own teaching, this has helped me kind of keep that spirit of, you know, student questioning being the heart and soul of instruction and curriculum. So how often do you use the question formulation technique, do you think? Maybe four to five times a year. It depends. This year, I've used it three times so far, and I can imagine it coming up again. But for that one example I gave you, I I didn't have it planned. I just knew, uh-oh, something's mm-hmm. happened in the world, and none of us know what to say about it. So what can we do? Let's question it. I love how you say that you used it first before engaging in media, especially about the Iran issue. I mean, I remember my high school age daughter coming home and saying that everything on TikTok is about World War III, right? So they're, they're yeah, in, this yeah. in this news from whatever source it's coming from. And so you're able mm-hmm. to take that and make it the center of your class or related to, to world history. And that's just super exciting. So before you knew about the question formulation technique, how is your class different and how has this technique made it better? I think before I'm a Vygotskian teacher in that I believe that students learn best when you're pushing them at the edge of their zone of proximal development, right? Mm-hmm. And that happens when you're pushing them with questions that they really have to grapple with. I think that before this technique, I would build essential questions, you know, that were content related, and I still do. And that would be the anchor of what a class would be about or a unit would be about, those questions that I built. Now, those questions haven't gone away, but what the question formulation technique has done is in a lot of ways, and I don't want, I'm not sure if I'm using this word appropriately, but it's kind of democratized questioning within my classroom Mm -hmm. in that it's made it open and accessible to a wider range of kids more quickly, Mm -hmm. right? So there's always a kid in class who, you know, this just isn't the subject they care about, or they have a lot going on in their world. So this isn't whatever questions you're offering aren't the questions that are gripping them. Right. But when they're working in community with each other, and let me say this also about the question formulation technique. If you are an educator who really likes a calm, staid, clean classroom, this isn't your technique. <laughs> the kids get loud. The kids get boisterous. There's chart paper everywhere. So it's, it's made the classroom more lively in this moment of questioning. But it's also made it so that, you know, even my learners who I think would otherwise be struggling to imagine why their engagement matters with a prompt or a question, find like an almost automatic engagement, especially once we start to prioritize questions. I think that they're surprised often in how similar their prioritized questions are because they're all working generally in separate groups. And then when they come and share their prioritized questions, they see, oh, wow, I, was, I wondered the same thing. I wondered that too. I wondered that too. I wondered that too. And as an educator, it's taken some of the burden off of me to, I don't want to use the word entertain, (laughs) but people have been teaching long enough, you know, there is a captivation factor. Like, how do you, how do you capture the attention of 
your audience, which is your classroom. I think that this is this method like has captivated them. So it sounds like you would say that the question formulation technique has made you an even better teacher. Is that true? That is true. <laughs> so specifically so about, about why that might be. I think it's helped me think about questions I wouldn't otherwise consider. You know, I've been teaching again for 14 years. Of course, the curriculum has changed. The curricula that I've taught has, has changed. Of course, the school spaces I've taught it have changed. But for years, the essential questions that I use to engage learners were much different. So this has actually helped me think about how to get the kids practiced in coming up with their own research questions almost. And one of the big challenges for my department, we engage students by the end of their sophomore year in, in serious research projects around decolonization struggles around the world. I think that one of the hardest parts for doing good research for junior scholars is figuring out, well, how do I know a question is worth it? How do I come up with a question that is one worth chasing? You know, and this has helped me have that conversation earlier with students. And also in a more public way, it's not one-on-one. You know, we're talking about questioning and that, and that is as much a part of our course content and, you know, why history is important questioning as is any fact or figure itself. So I, I think that's made me a, a better teacher because wouldn't I get bored if I just showed up every year with the same facts and figures or slightly altered facts and figures as, as things change over time? This has made it so that the classroom has become is becoming and has become more responsive to the learners that are in the space at any given time. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell me how long you think it took you to become a proficient facilitator of the question formulation technique. Oh, I think I had it after the second or third try. <laughs> I think it was the second or third try. I think the first time that I tried, the first time that I tried it, I was coached, right, by Lou Santana, which is well, a major benefit. But they also have all these planning resources. There's this, for folks that are listening, rightquestion.org. If you go to that website, there's all these resources. There's also videos of people doing the technique on YouTube. So I looked at all this stuff. And I remember my first time doing it, I was, you know how they, how I just said one of the premises is non-judgment? I was totally judging myself. I was worried about the time. I was worried about the question premise, the question focus being good enough. I wasn't giving myself the freedom to not be perfect in it. So I think that impacted how it went the first two times. It was really kind of like rigid and tight. But by the third time, I just, you know, opened up, set the timer, kept on this with time, no more than two or three minutes for the processes themselves of coming up with questions and coding our questions and prioritizing our questions. So by the third time, I feel like I got into the fun of it. That's exciting. Brendan, do the students like it? I guess so. <laughs> they say they do. They say they do. And my students, when they don't like something, they don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how your students are out there. But when my students yeah. don't like something, they don't do it. So I say that my students like this, not because they, after this, they were like, this is the most amazing method ever. How did you come up with this? When I didn't come up with it. But I noticed that they're engaged the whole time and laughing and also coming up with some spectacular questions so that the feedback I get to give them isn't, 
that's a great question. It could be really specific about like why their question really got me to think or feel something. I know that they like it because they're engaging with it. They're not just going through the motions of it. And Brendan, do you have a story maybe of a particular student or group of students that really achieved a success using the question formulation technique that kind of sticks with you that you could share with us? One of our first is that within the first month of our classes together, in the modern world history class, you know, we start with Canvas discussion prompt or a digital discussion prompt that asks the students to share a moment that gave them that have, that's given them pause over the past month or two. You know, what's something that's happened in the world beyond the United States of America that's given you pause? So we start talking about human nature. We start interrogating into Maslow's hierarchy of of needs. We start thinking about what we need to survive. We start talking about thriving and evolving versus evolving as a human species. So I set that up as the premise for I thought this was really successful in that here's the question focus that we interrogated after sharing out all the things in the world that were giving us pause. You know, some students talked about international affairs while some students talked about gun violence that happens right in our backyard. We're 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. The question focus is, human nature is complex in that humans as a species tend to be both individualistic and collective as they navigate relationships in society. Again, the question focus was, human nature is complex in that humans as a species tend to be both individualistic and collective as they navigate relationships in society. So typically, before I use this method, I'd have you know students write essays on this. After we did some reading and some work around Rousseau and, and thinking about Kant, and, and they'd always choose one or the other. Humans are individualistic or they're collective, you know, the either or. And what I've strove, what I've really tried to do in the past few years is get myself out of and also get my kids out of binary thinking, especially when it comes to questions of history, of the grand narrative, and also of their own stories and the stories of other people. So during the question formulation technique, I wasn't shocked. I wasn't surprised. I was, re- I was really encouraged by the fact that kids were, were already, with their questions, coming to the conclusion that, you know, humans are both individualistic and collective. Without me as explicitly coaching them in being non-binary, you know, and being more both and in their thinking, their questions were taking us towards talk about, towards dialogue around, towards the practice of, and being in a both both and mindset over an either or mindset. How exciting. That just shows the sophistication, right? Where I think when you're seeing in the past that they answer, you know, either or, one or the other, it's like they're trying to answer an essay from a template and do what they've learned, right? And right that they can argue simply, which is, you know, good to have those writing skills, but even better to be able to think more deeply about the real meaning of the question, right? And Mm -hmm. to, you know, make it meaningful to them. I'm sure they were coming up with examples that, you know, that they could actually relate to in in both of those ways that you described individualism. Yeah. And you know what else they were doing? They weren't those essays I would get in years past when They'd, there'd always be this, you know, am I answering it right? 
is this is is it right? Is it collective? Am I am I right? Is it individualistic? Mm-hmm. And then you know, I I come with the shocker. Nope, it's both ends, right? Mm-hmm. But they were entering, they were entering the writing process. The majority of them are entering the writing process thinking this way. So, tell us, Brendan. What teachers would you recommend check this out? Is this a, a technique that's only for history teachers of seniors in a private school or kids from your public school background? Could this be used in different settings and at different grade levels? Who would benefit from learning more about this practice and, and where could they go to learn more? Oh, I think this is beneficial for everybody. And the class that I was talking about, both those examples are my sophomores, right? So these are, you know, very pretty junior students and not not the seniors in terms of who can benefit from it i think that this this is for every subject i think this is definitely for middle and upper school teachers and mm-hmm. i haven't tried it with lower school students like i haven't tried it with fifth graders but you know that fifth graders are at that moment they're starting to question really well so i i play with it with them but i haven't tried it with them myself but you know i also do faculty training as director of inclusion so I've also used this technique in grappling with some problems that we have in terms of school improvement, you know. So the question formulation technique is is not siloed to any specific subject or age group. This has engaged learners as young for me as, you know, middle school and as seasoned for me as senior teachers in their 20th and 25th year of teaching and learning. So I think this is as much a leadership tool for schools to really grapple with the non-binary nature of the choices we have to make in institutions Mm -hmm. as it is a tool for getting students to practice interrogating whatever content or subject area they're in. This question focus, how long does it take you to come up with with this and is there a formula to the type the way that you focus the question does it mm-hmm. take a lot of thought and wording to get it just right or what's been your experience mm-hmm. creating the question focus so i think that is the hardest part when i went through my partner would could could, could attest to this i remember before i went and did a huge development at shipley with over 100 students around this so that was one of the first times i was i was doing the method I think that was that's what I spent the most time on trying to figure out what the best question focus was because really that's the heart and soul of this. That is all the terms that are in the question focus, the way that it's that it's structured offers really the the food for thought that people kind of rip their questions off of, right? So for me, coming up with good question focus foci has been a process of thinking about what terms, what ideas, what critical features of any moment or or content piece I want students to grapple with, right? So for that one about Iraq, I didn't have much time to come up with it, but it ended up working. And I can also share that, you know, I didn't come up with it fully. I took the title off of a Vice News video that came up across like my Twitter feed. I watched it. I had all these questions at the end of it, just watching it. And before that was the piece that I was talking about, we watched before we engaged with the piece as a class, because, you know, students might be thinking, well, is this valid? Is this fake news? Is this, I used that title to you to craft the language of the question focus. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Right. So that's where we got the Iran's power over Iraq has the potential to instigate World War Three. Because mm. this was the kernel that kind of came out of that came out of the media piece. So I wanted to take that kernel and turn it back around so that we could question it before we even engaged with the kernel. I think that's a complex way of saying I think that's the hardest part of the question of the question formulation technique coming up with a question focus that generates really great questions. But if you get that book, Make Just One Change, there's a whole chapter that talks about methods and ways for creating really good foci. Did you say that it's titled Make Trust, Not Change? Oh, no. Make Just One Change. Make Just One Change. Okay, sorry. Who is the author of this? How do you spell the name? Luz, L-U-Z, Santana, and Dan Rothstein. We'll be sure to put that link up here on the podcast so that other educators that want to learn more about implementing the question formulation technique to really create a student-centered classroom where students are highly motivated and engaged and lively, really engaging in content either before learning it or to reflect on it after learning it or, or in between. Make Just One Change by Luz Santana and Dan Rothstein. And thank yeah. you so much. Can I put a plug in for the website too? I want to make sure that I say that just because there's so many free resources on there. Rightquestioninstitute.org, rightquestioninstitute.org. And I know from reading the book and from meeting Luz that their mission is to emphasize the skills of maintaining and growing democracy. And really questioning is at the heart of that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Brendan. It's been wonderful having you on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Ed Curation. We hope you learned something today about a curriculum resource that produces fresh, lively, and authentic learning. Check out edcuration.com to find out more. That's E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N.com.